All right. You know, in the Jewish world, the rabbi sits and the students stand. I don't know where we got that wrong. Um, okay, here we go. Now, we're going to cover five whole verses in Daniel chapter 6 today, hopefully. Um, but here's what's wild. As I'm going through Daniel 6 and realizing, I mean, this, this is just one of, the, one of those chapters. I, I was thinking this week, how, how do you... How do we now attempt to educate generations of kids without teaching them the Bible? And I don't mean just the eternal truths of the Bible. I just mean the power of the history and the literature, the writings of this. It's just brilliant. It is just brilliant. We've, we've looked at passages. We looked at Daniel's prayer just a few weeks or months ago and, and just how beautifully this thing is written. And, and it's just it's really kind of stunning. And so I get into this section in Daniel 6 which is one of those, it's, it's got to be the story at least found in D Daniel 6. It's got to be what? At least top 10 most no, best-known stories in the Bible. Um, maybe top 10 best-known stories in, in all of history. Daniel and the lion's den is, is such a famous story. And getting into it and realizing in five verses, there are two or three massive uh, lessons, life lessons, woven into this. And so as we dive in, <laughs> I think you'll see as well, um, and one of them is, is one of the things, I'm, as those of you, many of you know me and know this about me, that I'm kind of a character trait wonk. Um, I'm really a nerd about that, and, and I really like to understand what character traits are like. Part of this is my therapeutic training. Part of it is um, my focus in my master's was on personality theory. Um, on top of that, um, just, just obviously a student of Scripture and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and as we learn things about ourselves that are either amazing and really neat to see and cool to learn about ourselves or that are just gross and need to change. And these are typically issues that have to do with character. And as we're dealing with this, it's one of these today is going to turn up that's one of my, I consider the most important um, character aspects and character studies that we see anywhere in Scripture. So, <coughs> excuse me, so Daniel chapter 6, if you remember correctly, Daniel chapter 5 ended with this general um, who became king named Darius um, Darius the Mede has conquered the Persians. If you, I mean, Darius the Persian has conquered. Run, try one more try. Darius the Mede has conquered the Babylonians. Um, the Babylonians um, they uh, uh, thought themselves invincible, and then um, they took they took them. Uh, Darius and his armies took them um, in a single night by surprise. And uh, you can go back and listen to last week's sermon if you want to hear the details about that. It's a pretty amazing story. So that's Darius. Darius is now in charge of the city of Babylon. And in some sense, the kingdom of Babylon. Now, remember, this is, this is under the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire was essentially the entire known world, or soon would be. Darius, the general, whose who's, uh, given name was probably Gobrias, um, had taken the city, had led the armies in the city, had taken it, and now was given a responsibility to run the city. He's, in, he's about 62 years old when he takes the city. Um, and now he is going to settle down and run the kingdom, and he does it exactly like any military man would. He immediately begins to set up authority structures. And as we get in Daniel chapter 6, verse 1, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account so that the king might suffer no loss. So, we don't know, had word of how Daniel had handled Belshazzar, the, just the chapter before, um, had that reached Darius? Don't know. 
But for some amazing reason, Darius decides to put Daniel, a wise man from the last kingdom, technically in some ways the last two kingdoms, to put them over his kingdom too. Either he is a, a powerful enough, important enough, and insightful enough leader that he can spot someone he can trust, someone to put in authority, all that. Or, or maybe he just liked the fact that Daniel had prophesied that he was going to take the city the night that he took the city. We don't know exactly what all plays into this. Did Darius know about the writing on the wall? Was the writing still carved into the wall somewhere? And Darius had this story told to him? <coughs> we don't know. Maybe he had heard about that. Now, <coughs> sorry, you might, feel, you might, if you read about this and study this, you might find that there's um, a tiny, every once in a while, when people are looking for contradictions in Scripture, they find the silliest things, and this is one of them. In Esther chapter 1, we have this passage, verse 1, in the days of Hasuerus and the, um, the one who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Now, one of the things that the Hebrews did that messed us up with history is the Hebrews like to assign their own names to people. And it might be the name that no one else called them. I don't, we don't know why exactly they did this, but they did that. And, and this is probably Xerxes, the famous, the famous um, emperor Xerxes, who, you know, the one who led somewhere between a few hundred thousand to a few million men against the, Thermopylae, the, the Spartans at Thermopylae, that Xerxes. And it says 127 provinces. Well, we'll understand this is not the same Darius would have been doing 120 satraps over the province of Babylonia. Um, Xerxes would have been doing over the province of all of Persia, which would have been, again, as you just read, from India to Ethiopia. That's, that's big square footage there, right? All the way from India to Ethiopia. So Darius is dividing up the Babylonian city, not the entire empire. It's, it's really is shocking. Those of you who study history at all, because um, the way we're often taught history is this very linear, very clear, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, this happened. And the truth is, we know so little about ancient history. We're really piecing things together. Um, it's, it's a real frustration sometimes when we look at this, and it also makes it an extra frustration, like we talked about last time, when people come along and say, oh, this Darius character, he's a totally fictional character. You like, it's amazing that someone's willing to take that risk when there's such huge gaps, but that's where we are. This is a military man. He immediately applies his experience to the governance. He has three direct reports. They each have 40 or so um, who report to them. He practices delegation, management, leadership, so that he may suffer no loss. This is a great, for any of us who are in leadership, we could stop actually here and teach on the process and the concepts of leadership here, delegation, management, leadership. We're not going to. But I want to I tell you guys, like one of the things that's amazing that I totally identify with this type of leadership, the idea that Darius is going to say, listen, I've got, I've got three people, I've got a leadership team that's incredibly potent. They know what they're doing. They're fantastically competent. I don't have to worry about stuff. They take it and I can forget it exists. They come back to me later and report. And this, by the way, happens to me all the time, that we, we have a one-on-one -on -one meeting every week with my guy, with my team. It's Re Rebecca and the three guys, Lance and John and Paul and and we'll meet, and one of them will come and say, like, hey, I'm gonna, here's the report on that thing you assigned to me. I got it done. And in my head, I'm going, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, apparently, I gave you an assignment that was very important to me, and you've now taken it, and you've run with it, and you've made it happen. And the minute I gave it to you, I don't need to think about it again. That's, that's what it means to suffer no loss. They've got it. They take care of it. I don't ever sit, in, I never at any point during the week do I hope that John has the worship 
uh, schedule and the worship team planned and ready for Sunday morning. I never think about it. It's like magic. I show up and it's done. This is, this is what I mean when I say I look to the... And this is what... It, it's ama- the, the staff that you have at their ability to take care of that kind of stuff is amazing. Um, and that's what this means. This, this, church, this, your, this church, you guys, you hire staff like that. We hire staff that we say, um, hey, do you have this? Yes, I've got that. Good. Because the assumption is you now are more of an expert in that area than I will ever be. And so I'm counting on you. And it, it really is quite phenomenal. Um, but I want to comment on something else here that struck me. And that's this. Here we have Daniel. Daniel is reporting now to Darius. Darius is 62, maybe a little older at the time. This is written. And Daniel is somewhere between 70 and 90. And most people think closer to 90. Here's here's an interesting question. This, This applies, I think, to the concept of old age, retirement, and ministry. So I want to take, this is one of those concepts, and I want to take just a second and talk about just a little bit. What is the role of that? I think that the truth is that, that we can come to a place in life that because of our savings or because of our retirement or because of our investments or whatever, we may come to the place where we no longer need to do our job to make money. And I think that's a, that version of retirement is totally fine. That you say, this has been my vocation, this has been my career path, and, and I've now reached this age, and I'm, I don't have to do that anymore, so I'm going to stop doing that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. <clears throat> I think there's also the version of retirement that you get too old to do your job. I've said before that I don't know exactly at what age, probably somewhere late 50s, early 60s, I'm going to put together a team of people whose job is to meet with me once a year and say, do I need to stop now? There just comes a point, and many, maybe if you've been to a church like that, when the pastor or the leader is just in a position where they've lost enough of a step in their leadership that it's just, it's just time for them to let somebody younger to take over different aspects and responsibilities. I think that's totally appropriate. It, it, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. And so I'll have to have some people who aren't afraid of me and aren't afraid to hurt my feelings to sit down with me and say, dude, <laughs> it's time. So, so when, that, when that happens, I, I, we need to love each other. And I think that's totally appropriate, if, especially there are jobs that we easily could get into that position where we just can't do that kind of stuff anymore. That version of retirement seems necessary, right? Makes total sense to me. What doesn't is the thought of Christian a Christian coming to the place where they are saying, I'm retiring from investing in eternity. And that version of retirement, I think, is completely inappropriate. Whatever it is you do to get a paycheck today, there may come a day when you don't do that anymore. That's fine. That's just, if you're talking about retirement in that way, I, I hope and pray you get to a place where that's your option. If it's not, bummer, but I hope you get there. If it is, I hope what you do then is you take that freedom and you begin to minister in new ways that you couldn't do before. You begin to be on mission in ways you couldn't be before. You begin to do the things that you couldn't do before because you had this job that you had to report to. That you're investing in your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren in ways that you couldn't do before. That seems to me like a main value in retirement is to be able to say, you know what, now that I've retired, I am free to to invest in the next generation and the next generation and the next generation, whatever that looks like. It is vitally important. We, we need this. The church must have this, this population of people who get to there. In fact, one of the things I love about Daniel is that if you want to teach about teenagers who make a difference, Daniel is a great version of that. He's a great one to go to. He gets kidnapped, taken to a different country that he doesn't know, and he immediately begins to stand up for his God. 
under those conditions, facing pressures we can't possibly imagine, and immediately as a teenager, he begins to stand up for God. So if you're going, I'm, I'm too young to minister, Daniel would say, no, you're not. You're not too young to make a difference. You're not too young to take a stand. You're not too young to stand up for what God teaches as the truth. You're never too young for that. You can start that early. Daniel did. And if you want to talk about being too old in order to minister and to make a difference and to have an impact and to stand up for God, I present to you Daniel. What a, by the way, what a legacy that is. Who else gets that in the Bible? And then they, they start strong, they finish strong, and they're strong in the middle? I mean, Jesus died at 33. Daniel had to do this stuff for 60 more years than Jesus did, right? I mean, Jesus would have been fine. Don't hear middle like he, he would have done fine. But that's not what I mean. But let, think about that. I mean, he, Daniel faces all the hardships that you could face throughout life. Now, I'm, of course he sinned. We're going to talk about that. Of course he messed up. <coughs> but just his story is such... Daniel proves to us you're never too young to start standing up for God, and you're never too old to be standing up for God. The church can't attend to what is called what we're called to without this. Listen to what it says in Titus chapter 2. This is Paul writing to Timothy, the, the relatively young pastor, probably. Um, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-control, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good and to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their husbands that the Word of God may not be reviled. That's going to be hard to do if there's no older men or older women who are faithful to continue to stand, who are faithful to invest it's a, it's a little late at this point. We Ginger and I have joked about this, but when I first came to Tyler 20 years ago, 20-something years ago, I began seeking around for men who I could be mentored by, who could invest in me. And I found some men who would do that pretty quickly. And then we started looking for women who would invest in Ginger. And we looked, and we looked, and we looked, and we couldn't find any. Women would say they would. Older women would say they would, and they would meet with her once, and then they would... They wouldn't ever con. They would just bail. They would. They were too busy. They were had too much stuff going on. Whatever. I don't know what all it was. And you can't find a more pleasant, wonderful person to spend time with than my wife, Ginger. So this is a. It was an issue, and it's an issue because. And the message we kept. By the way, when I was a student minister, for the older population, let me just tell you, when I was a student minister, it was a huge frustration to me that I read that the new generation of young people coming up, those who are called millennials now, that the new generation coming up. They listen to older people quickly. People my generation, Gen Xers, and even at the time, the generation above me, you had to prove yourself to them. But people who have been married 30, 40, 50 years, they come in and speak, and the kids are just riveted. Because, you know, they had learned that all of their heroes are going to fall. All their heroes are going to end up being messed up people. They're going to end up divorcing. They're going to end up falling in ministry or whatever, and they had come to believe this. The, the millennials believed this. They see a young leader as just a future leader who's going to fall. That's all they see them as. They see a young pastor as a pastor who's just going to fall. They haven't fallen yet because they're young. If you get to the end, if you're nearer the end of that and you still stood strong, man, they want to hear from you. So I go to the, the seniors class where I was a, youth, a student minister at two different churches and said, please, 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 
volunteer to lead with the young people. Please volunteer to step in and speak to them. Just come once and share. Drive the bus. I don't care. They need interaction with you, and they listen to you. I'm telling you guys, I spoke at a youth camp at about that time in California, and, and I, I spoke twice on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday morning, and before the Wednesday evening, I had this kid come up. He comes up to me, and uh, just straight up as millennial as he could possibly be, a California millennial boy. This is probably 15 years ago. He walks up to me, and he goes, um, you know, I'm not over you yet. It's like, usually I'm over the speaker by Wednesday, but I'm not over you yet. That is the millennial mindset. He's just verbalizing it. But if I had been in my 60s with white hair getting up there and going, guys, I've been married to the same woman for 40 years, I've been, he would have been targeted in on me, everything I said. Because I'm not just someone who's just, just waiting to disappoint him. Don't let that be us. When, we, when I started the church 11 years ago or so, the average age, right, nine years ago, the average age of our church, 20 years, we've aged a little bit. We're starting to have a who begin to invest in this way. We need to do this. Listen to, what, listen to this passage. I think this is a powerful passage for anyone who is in that retirement generation or whatever. Psalm 71 says this. Oh God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You have done great things, O God, who is like you. This is, this is why this concept, I think, is a powerful and important one. We're never done with this one. God, don't ever forsake me so that I'm able to proclaim your might to another generation. I hope that's your prayer, anybody who's here. That is Daniel in his 90s, 80, 70, 80, 90 years old, standing up still, for what is right against kings or with them, whichever is appropriate in the moment. He can be the great fan of a king in one moment, and in the next moment be speaking hard truth to that very same king. That's a powerful picture of us as Christians as to what it's going to look like as our culture is less and less friendly to us. When someone's right, we get to rejoice in that. When they're wrong, we get to call them out. And we don't do that with fear Daniel's such a perfect example of this. Then Daniel 6.3. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Great, great Aramaic word here, uh, natak, the, the word distinguished. The idea here is of a bright object you're traveling towards, splendor. One commentary mentioned that Daniel outshone the others. He shined more brightly than all of the other leaders. What a great, what a great picture. What a great thing to, to want to have be true in our lives. I love the idea. I've always loved this. You guys will have to excuse me. I've always loved the idea of Christians being so competent that leaders have no choice but to put them in charge of something. It's like, I, he's a Christian. That's really going to cost me politically, but I cannot have this person leading. They're the best I've got. I love that concept. I love that picture. And that's where Daniel is as a, as a Yahweh follower here. He, he just outshines everybody. <laughs> Notice how ironically, by the way, Daniel is about to be put in charge of all the other satraps. So you have Cyrus, the Persian, who is the king of the Persian Empire. You have Darius the Mede, who is the king 
of Babylonia, or at least Babylon. And he's about to put Daniel next. Daniel is about to be promoted to what? Do I count right? Third in the kingdom. Sound familiar? The very thing Belshazzar tried to bestow upon him the last day of his kingdom. Third in the kingdom. That's what's coming. That's um, by my Why? He outshone them because of his excellent spirit. Okay. What do you think excellent spirit means? Nope. And incidentally, there's not necessarily, I mean, there would be wrong answers to this, but there's not necessarily a right answer. We might not, we don't know for sure what is meant here. What do you think is being talked about here? Really, it's okay to. What about his character? Okay, integrity, we'll come back to that. Joyful, like that picture. Obedience, good. Just, yes. Okay, gentle. Yeah, absolutely. Gentle means enough strength, right? Not too much. The least force necessary. Others? Consistent? Christ-like? <laughs> Pre-Christ-like, that's right. <laughs> Confident? Meek? What was that? Wisdom, showing wisdom? Yeah, yep. Trustworthy. I think all of these are absolutely right. We see in the passage, it's going to go on to say some of them, faithful, excellent, competent, trustworthy. May just be as much a simple concept as his, his attitude. Um, I tell staff and people I'm mentoring and my kids, when you can be faithful in the small things, you'll probably get the opportunity to be faithful in big things. But we all want to be faithful in big things to start. But that's not how that works. I've also said the ability to defer is, is really, really valuable. I tell my kids it's probably worth about $20,000 a year. I think the ability to defer is probably worth about twenty grand a year, salary-wise. And the ability, the willingness to push through problems, that when you see a problem and there's a barrier, if you're the type that goes like, well, I mean, I tried. Versus the person who goes like, I'll figure out how to get past that barrier, that's probably another $20,000 a year. It's, it's really a big, these are skills and, and mindsets and mostly attitudes that you can have. The willingness to disagree, the ability to disagree well is a huge skill. And it's one that most people just are terrible at. Pike and I would laugh about how something would go wrong in the sermon and we would get two emails that week, people who are frustrated with what went wrong in the sermon. And one, one would make you want to intentionally make it go wrong the next week too. But you're like, oh really, you didn't like that? Watch this, Right? I mean, it's just like, really, you have to be a jerk about it? You don't have to be a jerk about it. I mean, we, like, we want it to go well, too. And you get another email from somebody else, and they're complaining about the same thing, and they do it in such a way that you want to take them to lunch. You go, thank you. Thank you for pointing that out to us. Like, the ability to disagree well. And I see Daniel with all of these skills, these phenomenal skills that he has. But the one that stands out to me that I love to teach on, and I'm going to take some time here and teach on, is integrity. Daniel is just, when you, when you consider integrity... And you look at the history of the human race. Daniel may be the greatest example of integrity ever outside of Jesus Christ himself. Things that seem to have integrity until they don't. So let me, let me tell you a couple of stories to help teach this concept. I want this to be in your brains. Um, one of the things I've tried to do, although it's interesting how this hasn't really been very successful, 
Um, at one point, when I was not before I was working at the church, I created a, a character conference. Because what I learned through some, some data was that what CEOs are really afraid of usually isn't about competency. It's about character. They're afraid of somebody funneling money or cheating the rules or breaking the law or things like that. And so I said, well, I'll, then I'll come teach, right? I will come do consulting to your, with your people and your company on character. But what ended up happening is they would say, that sounds like a great idea, but then they would have to push that in the back because, oh, we have this official training we have to do and we've got this certain training we have to do. And, and it never could quite reach the, the what needed to be, you know, could quite make the A list, even though allegedly that's the number one thing they feared. So what I teach on integrity, here's how I talk about integrity. So first, let me show you a, a news story from 2009. Um, in Shanghai, you got a picture? In Shanghai, a 13-story apartment building was under construction when it fell over. I mean, it just, it fell. It seemed to have great structural integrity. The windows didn't even break when it fell. It fell in one piece. That's impressive, right? I mean, somebody... Someone got fired and somebody else got a commendation. Like the guy in charge of it not falling down got fired. The guy in charge of the windows was like, man, you nailed it. The problem was the workers had removed a huge amount of soil from beneath it to create a garage and the excavated earth they had piled next door. There was a rainstorm. The riverbed collapsed the hole below it and the foundation became a pool of mud and the whole thing just fell down. Um, that's impressive. In 1989, some of you remember this, I was watching the World Series, and there was suddenly an earthquake. In fact, I was watching, for those of you who are Tom Clancy fans, I was watching the World Series and reading The Sum of, the Sum of All Fears, whichever one the nuclear attack goes off in a football stadium. I'm literally reading that while watching the World Series, and all of a sudden, my screen goes, and I'm like, which is, what? So, Turns out it wasn't a nuclear attack, it was just an earthquake. And not even that massive an earthquake, a 6.9. I mean, that's meaningful, but it's not, that's not earth, supposed to be earth-shattering from an earthquake perspective, right? But it did a lot of damage in San Francisco. Some of you may remember that. What you may not know, or maybe you do, is that in 1906 there was an earthquake as well. Um, we, there you go. 1906 was a devastating earthquake and then fire that swept through the San Francisco, the famous San Francisco fire. And the rubble from this earthquake and fire was just put in various places throughout the city. They would dig a hole and then put rubble in it, or they would push it out into the harbor. This one was about an eight, an eight, by the way, on the Richter scale. And so they, pushed, they took the rubble from this destroyed city and burned city, and they just put it in holes, or they put it in the harbor, and then over the years, guess what they did? They built on top of it. Guess what that rubble did in the 6.9 earthquake in 1989? You could see where the rubble had been buried based on what, what fell in 1989. <clears throat> what was buried, the fact that the foundation was not trustworthy, what that means is the buildings aren't safe. We have a term for buildings that aren't going to fall down. We say that they have structural integrity. Very good, right? Matthew 7, Jesus teaches this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears the word of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew and beat against the house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Here's what I want you to notice. This is a key concept. So I love what I'm teaching on this in a building to walk over to the wall and say, how, how much integrity does this building have? What would you say? You hope it's good, right? I mean, you're here. The little cracks around that window right there might make you a little nervous if you were over, sitting too close to that, like Paul is. But he knows the, he knows the cracks are there. He's good. The, um, this is a, this is hopefully got a lot of structural integrity, right? When would you know? Think of the account that Jesus just tells. Two people, they both hear what he says, right? And one practices it, and the other ignores it. The one who ignores it is like someone who builds house on sand. Now, think about this. They both built houses, and they both lived in their houses, right? No problems. When is there a problem? Not until the storm hits. This is, this is the power of the concept of integrity. Often integrity is taught as what's true about you when no one's looking. But it's not that simple. It's what's true about you, period. It's what's true about you. Either you are this or you aren't this. When does the fall come? You never know. Believe me, as a counselor, I get to hear about them. I get to hear when suddenly someone who has hidden the cancer in their system, of their lifestyle, when the, the, the part of their foundation that has been dug out from under, sometimes I get to be there when the whole thing comes down. When I teach, when I'm mentoring young men, we talk about what, what seed of cancer is Satan putting in your life right now that if you don't start dealing with it now, the problem is it seems so minor and insignificant now. In fact, I've always assumed that what Satan would do, because Satan's strategic and he's smart like this, is that he'll let something like that grow in you and grow. So if you're a, you know, a high school kid and you fall, man, what's the consequences? Everybody goes, dumb kid, right? He should know better, dumb kid. But what if that very same termite, that, that termite that's, that's working in that person's life, they don't deal with it. What if Satan would love nothing more than for you to become a significant leader in people's lives when he knows there's a linchpin that all he's got to do is reveal it and down it comes? I think that's exactly how Satan plays with us sometimes. Do people get all the way to death before being found out? I'm sure they do. I'm sure that happens. I'm sure it happens all the time. That there's some horrible thing in their life that they have allowed to go on and go on and go on. Um, but don't assume that that's you. In fact, if you're wise, you will assume it's not you. You will assume that this is some, these things are things that we need to face and deal with as quickly as possible. The weight itself may become more than you can bear. This is, this is the, two, the two words we often talk about this. Come into the light is one of them. This doesn't mean you suddenly you're perfect and you're not going to mess up. This addiction is not going to probably, sometimes it does, it's probably not going to suddenly go away. But what you need to be able to do is walk in the light of it. All of a sudden, the danger of it collapsing, if it starts to collapse, you've got people all around you who are coming alongside you and they knew this was a shortcoming and a challenge and it's all of a sudden, it's a whole lot less scary. Or maybe the idea of 
um, uh, it's time to, quote, come clean, that you need to be honest with what's going on in your life, these things that are destroying from the inside that people don't realize. We say this looks good, but that's just because the sheetrock looks good. We, we look at a house, we go, oh, the sheetrock looks fine. This, this thing has structural integrity. The sheetrock doesn't tell you anything about the structural integrity. What's going on behind the scenes is what determines the structural integrity. If these beams that we can see, if they're great up here, but below or behind, they're all rusted out, then we, have a, we still have a huge problem even though they look good on the outside. This is, this is the important idea. So the men needed to find out where he had weak spots. These men, they're going to turn on him because they're, they're, they found out Daniel. They, apparently they find out that Daniel's going to be put in charge of all of them. So that's what they're going. They're going, okay, everyone's got a price. Everyone's got something to embarrass them. And by the way, we do. So these men need to find out where are Daniel's weak spots? Where is there rot behind the wall in Daniel's life? Where is the mud piled up too high? Where is the foundation poor? Integrity means to seem sound and to be as sound as you seem to be. Those two things. What you are when people aren't looking or when they are looking. That's integrity. That we are what we seem to be and what we seem to be is sound. So they're going to try to figure out with Daniel. He looks good on the outside. So how about, so they're going to start digging. How about the official, about his, his official work? What could embarrass him there? Standards for the kinds of things that change over time like this. We're reading, a, I'm reading out loud a, a book about Sam Houston to Ginger. And, um, uh, and uh, it's been wild to hear, like, he lost all, of, you can imagine this today, guys. He, in, apparently in a fight or disagreement with his wife, he accused her of having been unfaithful to him. For that, he was removed from all government positions. Turned out she hadn't been unfaithful to him. And he so humiliated her and himself by accusing her that essentially he was removed from his position as an American representative. Can you imagine that being the standard? Oh my gosh. That's a different standard, right? These things change over time. What are the complaints against him? What are the faults? Where is he not trustworthy? Where has he been unable to juggle his responsibilities? Verse 4, then the high officials and the satraps. By the way, notice the high officials too. It's plural here. Everyone's against Daniel, including the other two governors. Remember there were three? The other two have now turned on him as well. The high officials and the satraps sought to find grounds for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. They could find no ground for complaint or fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Wow. There'd been the transference of government power and still they could find no corruption with him. The special counsel was formed to investigate Biden, I mean Trump, I mean Daniel, sorry. The FBI was assigned to spy on him 24-7 to find out something to embarrass him. They searched through old tweets and his social media posts, his photos from back in his fraternity days. The Watergate Hotel was broken into. The papers were searched. The rooms were bugged, or whatever the 600 B.C. version of all of these things were. And they found nothing. I am not interested in having somebody turn my life over like that. I think I would be embarrassed, at least. Anybody else? 
Dang. Every time I read that, it boggles my mind that this is the standard. We watch leaders and ministers fall all the time, don't we? So I teach this um, out of Pine Cove. I teach every year an identity class, this, this nine-month, eight-month program called The Forge. And one of the things I teach them, my last class with them is to teach, we call it the here in the lesson lesson. Um, and it is that I teach them about how to not fall in ministry. So for the first few years of The Forge program, <laughs> they had speakers come every single week from all over the world, publishers, uh, missionaries, preachers, speakers, leaders. from all over. It, was, it was really pretty cool what we were able to get because people love to invest in the next generation. And the students would ask these leaders the same 25 questions every week. They had a time to do that called the anvil. They would ask them the same 25 questions. And one of the questions was, do you personally know someone who has fallen in ministry for moral or ethical reasons? And every single year, every single speaker was able to say yes. Yes. And I don't mean you've heard of someone, you saw it on the news, I mean you know them. You've walked them through this. You've been there when it happened. And every single one said yes. Now you want the sobering piece of information? Every single year we did that, we had to uninvite a speaker from last year because they had fallen morally or ethically during that year after being asked that question. That is the power of sin as it grows in our lives. It's not something we can play with or toy with. We have to constantly be engaging with it at the battle line of here's, here's the temptation I face and how do I deal with this? How do I face this? Where am I fighting this? When do I lose and when do I win? And who's there with me when I lose and who comes alongside of me? That's what we're counting on each other to do. If you're married to somebody, you're not counting on them to be perfect. If you are, I mean, yeah, stop that, right? It's not going to go well for you. What you're counting on them is to be fighting the battle, Fighting the battle for purity, fighting the battle for integrity, fighting the battle. They're not going to be perfect. They're going to mess up. We all do. But you're counting on them to fight the battle, whatever that is for them. It's different for all of us. In the end, they come to a conclusion. Verse 5. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. <laughs> I just, who gets this kind of stuff? I mean... When moral cancer is at stage one in your life, and by the way, for some of us, that's going to be the case. You've got moral cancers at stage one or stage two or stage three. You need to know we, we are committed as a church to being able to come alongside you. Um, that was part of the mindset of leaving Aletheia, the counseling center, that my counseling center opened, so that there would be a place for people to go where they could find that quality, competent help with a biblical foundation. But we have that here. We have life groups where you can develop friendships, the type of people you can talk about this stuff with. We're in the process of developing um, a numerous, a couple of different life groups, including Regen, uh, which is a ministry specifically targeted for us, to a place where we can go and talk about where we struggle very openly. These are some of the things that we work on here. This is the church is for this. Sadly, most people come to the church and they hide this stuff. And the church should be the one place where you don't have to hide all this stuff, at least not from everybody. It isn't about being perfect, it's about walking in the light. Now, I want to transition from our own personal moral lives and talk about something that motivated me to choose Daniel as this next major series after John. And as this question, how do we live in a culture that is no longer our friend? Or at least it is less and less our friend all the time. 
Much of today's political leadership seems focused on either exploiting the church or limiting the church. Things that have been called sacred or at least moral, the gentle treatment of women, the protection of innocent life, the defense of justice, the independence of the message of the gospel from government interference, the sanctity of biblical marriage, the infallible truth of Holy Scripture. Things like this are quickly becoming or already are unacceptable in general in our culture. As the governing bodies continue to codify these stances into law, we will find ourselves on the wrong side of the river because the river is moving. If we stay the same, the culture is going to shift under us. It is already happening. We will find ourselves outside of the wall of the institutions that government and society protect. Let me say it again. We will be outside of the wall of the institutions that government and society protect. I think that's probably coming. To a certain degree, we're seeing the first signs of it. So the question is, if that's the case, if we're going to live in a culture that's not our friend, like it has been for the last 200 years, more or less, then what? What do we do under those circumstances? First, we have to accept the free gift of identity in Christ and follow Him. That is building a house on stone. And the house can be torn apart, but the foundation will still stand. When we face the storm, what will be tested is whether our foundation is on Christ and His teaching or not. Cultural Christians will bail. Congregational Christians will run. Only Christians whose identity is founded in Christ, which is, by the way, what it means to be a Christian, but that's the correct definition, whose identity is founded in Christ will be able to withstand that storm. Everyone else's, the rot behind the walls will be shown when that pressure comes. By the way, welcome to being a Christian. For almost all of history, in almost every place in the world, including still today, we've had it great It's such a huge blessing that we got to have this run here in this place. If it's taken from us, it's a bummer. I'm sad. As a patriot, as a Christian, my foundation has not changed even a tiny bit. Second, we dedicate ourselves to a community of growth, what we call sanctification in the community of the body of Christ, what we grow in, that we're always growing and learning and strength and energy. So here's what I would say. Number one, How about this for an action plan? Number one, that no one would find ground for complaint against us unless it is in connection with the law of our God. How's that for a guide guide path, right? Guide for the path. No one would find any ground for complaint against us unless it's in connection with the law of our God. Suffering for doing wrong is not persecution. It's punishment. If you pay because you're a jerk, you deserve to pay because you're a jerk. It has nothing to do with your faith. If you're immature and you pay for it, that's because you're immature. The Bible says this. First Peter, and God, I mean, Peter has to, I mean, talk about someone who would understand the difference between persecution and just being a, a, a wall-eyed moron. Peter would understand that, right? Peter has been in both of these worlds. He gets this. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 19, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? No credit for that. Uh, You sinned, and now you're paying the price. 
But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, that is a gracious thing in the sight of God. That's persecution. When you do what's right, when you say what's right, when you believe what's right and you pay for it, that's persecution. And number one is we know this could happen. This should be the only thing we suffer for. We should suffer for persecution if that's what comes because that's appropriate, just like with Daniel, that you go, listen, we tried to find something immoral, couldn't find it. That's what we want. That's step one of living in a community, living in a culture, living in a country that's no longer so much our friend is that we would go, well, step one is we need to make sure we're living above reproach. And here's number two. This one's even harder. We embrace any complaint that is in connection with the law of our God. See, this is an opportunity to be faithful and give an answer. 1 Peter 3, Peter also writes this, but, if, but even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. Don't be troubled. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Notice this isn't about avoiding the suffering or even avoiding the shame, the mistreatment, the, the malice, the slander. It's about creating an opportunity so that when someone slanders you, they have to go, I mean, except for that one guy. When we engage with non-believers or people who are enemies of the church, we want to do it in such a way that when they go, you know what, Christians, they're all like this. In the back of their mind, they have to go, I mean, okay, not all Christians. They won't say that. It's an important justice. And then number three is this one, that we have integrity, that we seek to avoid any change in our message one way or another when we are under pressure. The Ephesians word all through the book of Ephesians. The students are studying Ephesians this week. Chris Sherrod's going to be teaching students about Ephesians. The action word that's all through Ephesians is the word walk. Walk, 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 walk until you get to the end and all of a sudden Paul's word changes from walk to stand. Ephesians 6.3, Therefore take of the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. In the day of persecution, have we hidden his word in our hearts enough that we can remember what we need to be and do. So here's what I'm going to ask us to do. Ready? We're going to memorize a verse together. We're going to start today, and over the next few weeks, we're going to continue to do it. This is the verse. It's not the normal one that you memorize. It's not one that you're probably going to want to, you know, cross-stitch and put on a Christmas tree ornament or something like that. These men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find any connection with the law of his God. Okay, we'll say it together, and then start working on memorizing it. We'll try again. We'll do it again next week. Ready? Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So what you're going to be working on, life-wise, is putting your name in there for Daniel's name. That would be the goal. See, I want us to have such Christ-integrated, Christ-saturated lives. Christianity isn't three hours on Sunday morning. That everything we do is saturated with the fact that our house is built on His foundation of His Word and is built up on the rock. So that every little thing that we do, the way we look to our leadership of our parents, the way we look to our spouses, the way we love our families, the way we reach into the community, every single little thing is dependent upon who we are in Christ. One, that it would be super tough 
for someone to find something against us unless it was in regard to Him and His Word. Question one is, can we be convicted for a lack of integrity? But then question two is, could they find something in regard to us in regard to His Word? In other words, could we be convicted of integrity? So we're going to talk next week, we're going to move into that. Step one is, can we be avoided of being convicted of, of not having integrity, of lacking integrity? But step two is, if someone said, okay, we're going to have to find something against this guy that has to do with his relationship with Almighty God, could they find that? Or would that be a challenge too versus a passive Christian life? All right, stand with me, please. I told you there was a lot here. And this may have been a little more of a shotgun. It may be that one part of this missed you and one part of it hit you. Whatever it is, I hope you're listening to what the Spirit is saying to us. As we look to our lives and say, how do I get the things out of my life that are not pleasing to God? How do I make no provision for the flesh? And by the way, this isn't a fear-based thing. This is We get to live in that freedom because Christ has purchased that freedom for us. So if you don't know Him, if you've not experienced that, if you've not given yourself over to that freedom, then I hope you will come and pray with us and we can talk about that. Um, if you've already been through the Welcome Home team or whatever and you're ready to come and join this dysfunctional family, we'd love to have you and you can come forward this morning as well. Our prayer with this time of invitation is that you would be looking to God, His Spirit, to lead you in whatever's going on. Sound good? Father, we're so grateful for the goodness of Your Word. God, thank you for a man like Daniel who can challenge us, who from youth to old age has lived this life of integrity. And Lord, we know he wasn't sinless and we know he wasn't perfect and he probably blew it in a lot of ways. And when we get to meet him someday, I'm sure he will love to talk to us about it. But Lord, what a great example to us that you can never be too young to stand up for the truth in your word. Never too young to stand up for you to give a reason for the answer of the hope that we have. Lord, we're never too old to stand up for you, to invest and make a difference. Thank you, Father, for the power of this man's story. I ask that you, we will be challenged through the power of your Holy Spirit because of him. In your son's name.